Not only does Paul graciously help me out by doing the announcements and the call to worship when I need him to, but this gracious brother was also willing to come over to my house on his lunch break on Friday and help me to haul a couch out of my house. Uh, Because a few weeks ago, my wife noticed out of the corner of her eye what she thought to be a mouse run under the couch in the living room. And me being the diligent protector of our home that I, that I am, I, I looked around the living room for mice or any evidence of mice, but I could find none. And she saw the same thing a couple of more times over the next week or so and, and demonstrating that she is much more discerning about these types of things than I am. She suggested that we just get rid of that couch. And... <laughs> I am too cheap to consider that option, and I I mean, I hadn't even seen a mouse yet. So, two weeks ago, my wife called me um, out, I was, I think I was taking a nap, diligent protector of the home that I am, called me out, and I rushed into the living room uh, just in time to see the, the little mouse run under the couch again, and I lifted up the couch to try and find him. And I did see a couple of holes in the bottom of the couch, and I thought that he might have gone in one of them, but I didn't really do a good job looking in there. And apparently, he had come out of the the hole again, uh, because when I lifted up the couch and then I set it back down, I set it on top of the mouse. And so I thought, problem solved. (laughs) But, but... Even though I had, you know, heroically defended our home from this invader, my wife still thought that we should get rid of the couch because there might be some more in it. There might be a nest in it because this was really the only place where we're seeing any type of evidence of mice. Um, but, but again, I didn't think that was necessary because there was no point in getting rid of the couch when I had just dealt with the mouse using the couch. And... <laughs> And as I mentioned, I am way too cheap, and you can tell how cheap because I'm actually trying to, even now I'm desperate to at least get a sermon illustration out of the couch. <laughs> and, and so I didn't want to get rid of it, but then on Wednesday I saw another mouse, I saw it, flee to the couch, and I was forced to make the uncomfortable call to Paul to have him help me remove the couch a mouse had some way made its way into our house and moved into our couch with my family, and there it was right there in plain sight, and it had made its own little family in the couch, and they made their home there. And when Paul and I lifted up the couch on its edge to try and fit it out the door, Paul's squirming because it was gross, it was immediately evident that this was the truth that there were definitely some mice in here because you could hear all of the chewed up inner parts of the couch and even some, some mice falling to the bottom of the couch like it was some kind of giant rain stick. That's what it was like. And when, when the couch was on its side, I tore one of the little holes. I tore it a little bigger and I looked in with a, with a flashlight and you could then see the evidence of wood and cushion that had all been chewed up. And it was then with much more enthusiasm that I gratefully, along with Paul, threw the couch on his truck so he could haul it off to his farm and burn it. What I needed a couple of weeks ago was for someone to pick up that couch and to turn it on its side and say, do you hear this? That's the sound of mice. And I needed someone to tear open inside of the couch a hole and expose what was really there all along with a flashlight. And in a similar way, but with a far more dangerous subject, this is what Jude is doing for us in this section of his small but powerful letter that we will be looking at today. Uh, giving us a picture here of what these false teachers that we discussed last week look like so that we can recognize them and deal with them more quickly. So if you look in Jude, verses 
5 through 16, they, they kind of make up the main body of the book. Uh, verse 4, though, um, kind of serves as the mini-thesis statement of this book. Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In these verses, we're told of the danger of false teachers who have crept in among them. And they are summarized here as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 16, really, are, are, they, they begin to describe what these people look like. That's Jude's way of showing them this is what they look like. So you can recognize them and deal with the threat. Because last week we covered verses 1 through 7, and we pointed out why we need to take the threat of false teaching so seriously. And, I, and we covered 5 and 7 in there because you can make a few points from it, but uh, it does. this section we're going to talk about today refers back to those um, verses, so it's good to have those in mind also. So, we looked at several areas last week, if you remember, that, that demonstrated that false teaching is one of the most serious problems that the people of God need to deal with. Since that is the case, that it is serious, deathly serious, he wants his readers to be able to recognize the dangerous people in their midst. So, so what he does here is paint a picture of them so that they can recognize the intruders for what they are. I want to look at Jude's description here of these false teachers in uh, four categories, which I don't, I don't have in your bulletin, but, but four, four points that we're going to look at um, to, to divide up the passage today to just kind of make it easier for you to follow. The four points are, and we'll go over them again, are insurrection, correlation, depiction, and condemnation. Insurrection, correlation, depiction, and condemnation. And this is what Jude uses to demonstrate who these false teachers are, to, to show who they are. So the first point is insurrection. Insurrection or rebellion. These false teachers are marked by their rebellion. So if you look in verse 8, in verse 8, which we'll be starting with, he says, yet in like manner, these people also. What is he referring to? Yet in like manner? Well, it's verses 5 through 7 that we talked about last week. Let's read that passage again. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So in verse 8, Jude wants you to connect to that. Uh, we're supposed to have this connection in our mind as we read the rest of now what he says in verses 8 through 16. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion." These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. 
waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So Jude points out here in this first section, he points out one of the ways that we can recognize them is their rebellion, their insurrection. Right away we say him seeing that, that, that phrase, yet in like manner these people also. He wants us to connect to those people from verse 4. These people are the people from verse 4 who have crept in unnoticed. In like manner, he is comparing these people to the, those three examples of verses 5 through 7 that we talked about last week. And we went into actually a lot more detail last Sunday night. The Israelites first, who rebelled against God by failing to believe His promises and then perished in the desert. The angels who rebelled in heaven and left to their proper dwelling. And those who committed the wicked depravity that we see in Sodom. Jude wants us to see the connection. He picks some of the most some of the most overt Old Testament examples of rebellion against God that there are, both both here and in verse eleven, which we'll talk about later, because he uses those examples because the type of rebellion going on here isn't as obvious as it is in those situations, but it is just as serious. And like we talked about last week, it is so easy and obvious to get worked up uh, and experience even maybe a bit of righteous indignation towards those who are, who are overtly opposing God in, in, in our culture out there. That's, that's the easy thing to do. But Jude wants us to recognize, again, that even though this rebellion is hidden within our churches, it is not just as serious, but even more serious because of that. He says, in like manner, these people are committing the same acts of sin, but they are doing it while hidden among you. Those, those three examples are from verses 5 to 7 are to make them take this threat with absolute seriousness. Those are well-known instances of people and angels rebelling against God. And if you would not stand idly by and watch those things go on, then you need to understand that those same types of people are right there in your presence now. And are you standing idly by now? In the same way that these three groups rebelled against God and were justly punished, you have the same type of rebellion going on among you. That's what Jude is saying. In verse, in verse 8, he gives three ways that these false teachers, these apostates, are just like those examples from verses 5-7. through seven. Three ways again. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. These are the three ways in which their rebellion is made manifest, in which it's seen. But notice also in verse 8 that their ground for doing this is that they rely on their dreams. They rely on their dreams, or simply in some translations, by dreaming or by relying on their dreams, they do these things. This is how they do them. This is how they justify them. And this is talking about uh, revelatory dreams, like dreams of where you think you're having a revelation, not like Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Not that, that type of dream, not like the follow your dreams, not that type of dream. Dreams of revelation. The, the word is claiming like a supernatural impression from God. And we know that because the only way, the only other place in the New Testament where this word for dreams is used is in Acts 2.17 when Peter is quoting from the book of Joel. 
And when it says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. It's, it's the word that means a, a supernatural impression. That type of dream. That's what he's talking about. This word has to do with receiving communication through a dream or a vision of some sort. So Judah's saying, what Judah's saying is that these men, these false teachers who have crept in among you are behaving in the same way as those rebellious Israelites, as those rebellious angels, and as those Sodomites. They're defiling the flesh. They are rejecting authority and they are blaspheming the glorious ones. And they are grounding their actions. They're grounding what they're doing in the extra-biblical revelations that they claim they are receiving. That's what is going on. This is how they get people to fall for it. You need some sort of authority to get people to buy what you're selling. So the best way to do that, especially with your, when you're dealing with those who claim to be Christians, is to claim that this teaching is from God and not from just you. Because no one can say something, really, if you think about it, no one can say something against that unless you know chapter and verse from the Bible that what they're saying is wrong. People using the God told me this argument just ends the argument all the time. Especially in our hyper-tolerant culture, the polite thing to do is to just be like, well, who am I to say that they're not hearing from God specifically right now in a, in a revelation or a dream? If someone you know, just straight tells you that God told them to do this, it's, it's so hard to continue the conversation. It's so hard to keep going unless you can show them specifically in Scripture where what they're saying is wrong. So when someone comes along who's been raised in a Christian culture, they can say some pretty, then some pretty legitimate sounding things and say that that's what God told them because they know the language. If you've ever read the Book of Mormon, there are quite a few of Christian-y sounding phrases in there. And that's because it was written by a guy who's very familiar with Christianity. And actually, because some of it is just straight plagiarized from the Bible, actually. But uh, it's, it sounds like that. So, so the people that Jude is writing to must have had the same kind of tolerance for people just saying things are from God, which, which were not from God, that we seem to have today in our culture. Just being willing to kind of well, you know what? Who, who am I to say that that wasn't from God? And just kind of go on with it. In fact, with the current discernment level of the church in the U.S., with the current discernment level where it seems to be, for us to spot a false teacher, for most of us, it would require someone to say something like that. Well, actually, God told me, thou shalt murder. That God revealed that to me. Then maybe we can be like, oh, no. But, again, if they're wolves in sheep's clothing, like Jesus says they will be, then we should not expect their, uh, their visions and their dreams to announce to us that they're wolves. We shouldn't expect that. This has always been an issue for God's people. This has always been a way that false teachers and false prophets get into positions of influence. In Deuteronomy 13, God tells His people, that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. God says those type of people, the dreamers of dreams, are put there as a test as to whether or not they really love the Lord. Will they follow after their dream, this people's dream, or what they know of God? 
Will they hold firm to what God has declared about Himself when someone comes in proclaiming a new revelation? Actually, turn back, if you would, to Jeremiah 23, where we were earlier. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 through 32. Again, this was a common problem. This has always been a common problem among God's people. Listen to what Jeremiah says here in following the passage we read today. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat? declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Isn't it interesting how many times God feels it's necessary to say, declares the Lord in that passage. His people are forgetting who He is because they're accepting new revelation. He, he goes in there and says, fine, let them say their dreams, but what does that have in common with the Word? And there's, a, there's a purity to the Word that is not true of these dreams. They're listening. These people are listening to dreams over the way that God has revealed Himself. Again, look at verse 31. Those who use their tongues and, and declare the phrase, declares the Lord about the things that they say, God says that He's against those people. He is against them and their lying dreams. He calls them reckless and worthless. It is a big deal to say that God told you something when He did not. So if you feel that God said something to you, but you're not sure about it, you had better shut up and not say that thing. It is a big deal. It's a big deal to be so reckless as to have some sort of a vision or premonition and treat it like God Himself is speaking. If false teachers are going to infiltrate the church, they need to be able to attempt to imitate the voice of God in some way. And this is what they do. And different false teachers do it with different degrees of success. So when the Mormons come knocking at your door, most of those who claim to be Christians can recognize the words that Joseph Smith claims are not God's words but a few are still swept away. When prosperity gospel preachers tell people about the vision God has given them for a private jet, most people can see through that, but unfortunately, an increasing amount of people in our culture are swept out of the church every year into prosperity gospel preaching churches. But still... Most can recognize that. But when a prominent Christian author says this, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear 
what God had to say to me personally on a given day. And then proceeds to sit down and write what she claims to be the direct communication from Jesus Christ. That book becomes the best-selling Christian devotional of all time. And those who should know better are heard to be saying, well, who's to say that Sarah Young isn't actually hearing the words of Jesus? Who am I to say that? To some degree or another, false teachers must claim revelations of God's truth outside of Scripture to get people to embrace their teaching. They have to do that. And they know that the best way to get people to swallow their vision is by wrapping it up in biblical-sounding language. So they use this platform of dreams or visions or extra-biblical words of God to cover over these, these three characteristics, these three examples of rebellious actions that they are committing and teaching and sneaking in under those dreams. First, it says that they defile the flesh. That phrase, we don't have time to go into it, but it refers to sexual immorality. And therefore, it's easily connected to the examples from verses 5 through 7 and his thesis statement in verse 4. They are sexually immoral, either living private lives of sexual immorality uh, that, that many times get exposed. How many times have we seen these televangelists caught in sexual immorality? And then, unfortunately, a bunch of them end up getting restored. Or, or, or they are, they're either doing that or they are purposely using their platform to legitimize sexual immorality. Where, where there is false teaching, it is being used, I promise you, to, to in some way advance sexual immorality in some way, shape, or form. This, and this has to be the case because false teaching undercuts, it undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. And any time you do that, Anytime you do that, you are opening the door to begin to hear the argument of Satan, his objections, his voice in everything. So you read, God hates divorce. And then, did God really say that? Doesn't, doesn't God also say, you want something somewhere? Doesn't he want me to be happy? Or, or when this. Scripture speaks so forcefully about lust and fornication. Did God really say? No one's being hurt by this. Does God really care what I do? You know, in, in my own privacy. With the whole LGBTQ movement, we are seeing so many false teachers coming in and using biblical sounding language to begin to normalize this. Did God really say? Did God really say homosexuality is wrong? Aren't there ways around that? Doesn't, he doesn't want people to be alone, right? Where you see false teaching, you can be sure that it is also being used to justify sexual immorality. Second, we're told that they reject authority. Once again, pointing back to the examples of 5-7 through seven and the statement in verse 4 where they deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They refuse to place themselves under the submission of the Lord and His Word. They make the Word of God fluid so that they can reject the portions that they want to reject. They, they are so slippery when they answer questions. They, they, don't, they don't deny that the Bible says this, but they also don't condemn those who are going against it. In the end, just like fallen angels, they dismiss the authority of God. Like I heard an extremely influential pastor say this week in a video I was watching, they say things like, like this, like what he said, I personally believe that the Bible is clear about affirming traditional marriage. Oh, good, yay. But everyone is certainly free to pursue their own happiness. That's why God gives us free will. You know how slippery that is. Trying to appeal to everyone, leaving the door open for sexual immorality to slip in. This is the type of talk we hear from false teachers trying to, to walk the line of not denying anything essential while still making sure they don't condemn anyone else's lifestyle. This is, this is nothing more than rejecting authority and we need to recognize it as such. 
In Acts 20.31 that we talked about last week where Paul is warning the Ephesian elders of the wolves that are about to to slip in and, and devour the flock, Paul distinguishes himself from the false teachers by reminding them that he was the one who admonished them. He was the one willing to tell them to repent of their sin. Thirdly, it says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is in reference to angelic beings, and it connects back to verse 7 in the sin of Sodom, where if you remember, the sin of Sodom is they're trying to rape angels. That's what's going on. There is a real sense actually in which Sodom is the example he's connecting them with the most here because all three areas, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming angelic majesties, they all take place in Sodom. This is probably referring, uh, when he's saying blaspheming the angels, this is probably referring to the duty of the angels when it comes to their responsibility to help deliver the law. And again, we don't have time to look up these references, but Deuteronomy 33, 1-4, Acts 7.53, Galatians 3.19, Hebrews 2.1-2 and 2 are all passages that indicate that the angels have a place, have a part in the delivering of the law. So he's comparing, what Jude is doing is he's comparing their disrespect for angels and the law they bring with the sodomites' attempt to rape the angels. Because you would want to be able to think that at least to the point of the desire to sexually violate angels, you could be like, at least I'm not doing that. But Jude wants specifically to connect that sin to what they're doing by... Now, you do a similar thing in your heart whenever you undermine the law that the angels had a responsibility to bring in. So to demonstrate how bad this is, in verse 9, Jude alludes to a story that is nowhere in the Bible. This is a story that possibly... It's nowhere in the Bible. This is a story that possibly existed in some non-canonical Jewish literature that Jude and his audience were familiar with. And... There's so many verses in this section today, and this needs more time, but, but just, just so you know, we have other Jewish literature that has survived to our time and that also references this story. But I want to make clear that by, when Jude, by Jude quoting this source, that, that does not mean that there is some lost book of the Bible out there. That is not what it means. In 2 Timothy 3.8, Paul gives the names of, of who are most likely the, the magicians who opposed Moses in Egypt. He gives their names as Janus and Jambres. These names are not given in Exodus. They're nowhere in Exodus. But rather, they come from extra-biblical literature that was around other Jewish literature. The fact that Paul cites their names in 2 Timothy does not make the extra-biblical literature Scripture, but by being in the Bible now, it does affirm that those names are true. So this is what is happening here. The same thing is here. This affirms the truth of this particular story and that actually all that God intends for us to know about this story is contained in Jude 9. All that, that's all we need to know about it. It's right there in Jude 9. So, And this also goes for Jude's quotation of the book of Enoch in verse 14 that we're going to talk about. So Jude goes into this story to demonstrate the seriousness of the blasphemy against the glorious ones that he has just spoken of. Here we see that after Moses died... In verse 9, if you look there, there was apparently a spiritual war between Michael the archangel and Satan in regard to the body of Moses. Apparently in this incident, we're not sure what the, we're not sure what the argument was about. Um, most people speculate that it's because we're told in Deuteronomy that no one knows where the grave of Moses is. And based on Israel's temptation to take things and worship them, uh, they, they, that God kept his grave hidden so that Israel wouldn't do that. So that, that's, that's one of the theories why he does that. But we, we don't actually know specifically what it was, but that's not the point of this. Because apparently, what, what Jude wants us to see is apparently in this incident, Michael refused to go beyond his own authority and told Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And th- this comes from an extremely humble place in Michael, the archangel. 
He knows that God can grant him victory over Satan, but he refuses to exercise any authority in himself and says, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not in that position. Michael knows that God uses Satan sometimes. Michael's statement comes from this understanding that God is sovereign. He has sovereign power, and he can do that which he wants to do by using whatever he wants to including Satan. And he did not presume to have authority over Satan unless God granted it. He did not presume a victory unless God gave it to him. Judah's contrasting that attitude with that of the false teachers who, according to verse 10, blaspheme all that they don't understand. They speak slanderously about glorious things which they can't comprehend. Because they can't comprehend it, they slander it. The way they speak indicates that they have no idea about the serious subject matter with which they are dealing. They do not take the holiness of God and His absolute incomprehensibility seriously. And that can be seen in the way that they don't even speak rightly of angels. Or that the, the law or the law that the angels helped to deliver. We see this exact thing present in a whole segment of Christianity today. A whole segment that refuses to act with the type of humble understanding that Michael the Archangel does in this section. This this belief, this understanding that everything that is materially good is from God. That's their belief. But everything that is is materially bad, that's from Satan. They they make those distinctions. And if you want to see that, just turn on TBN. And you'll hear this type of talk all the time. Satan, we bind you. Demon of cancer, I command you to leave. Demon of poverty, get out of this place. That type of stuff. I was listening to one of these guys praying once, and he started off... His prayer, he's thanking God for the service and for the people. And then he starts speaking to Satan and binding Satan. I'm watching that. Michael the archangel refused to do what you just did in the middle of a prayer to God. They don't understand that Satan is not omnipresent. And as a being who's restricted by time and space, he probably is not at church with you that day. Probably got somewhere else to be. Just like verse 10 says, they don't understand what the Bible teaches about how he refines people with trials. And that he has ultimate control over everything. So when they speak authoritatively about that which they don't understand, they blaspheme. Verse 10 compares them. It says that they are being destroyed by what they merely understand instinctively. They're unreasoning animals. Jude is comparing the false teachers to animals that don't actually think about what they do do what comes instinctively. It doesn't matter what kind of dream or experience that they have which, which confirms their, their own path to them. It doesn't matter what that is. Jude is saying they are acting like animals who are doing what comes natural instead of soundly reasoning by Scripture. When you attribute good things to God and bad things to Satan, and that's all you do, you are just doing what comes natural, like an, anim- like an animal, right? No pain equals good. Pain equals bad. Right? That's how animals act. Avoiding those extremes or running to that extreme. When you say that you believe the Bible clearly prohibits homosexuality, but you aren't going to tell someone it's wrong for them. You have not come to some enlightened state of Christianity. You're acting like an unreasoning animal. You're trying to appeal to as many people as possible so that you can be perceived as highly as possible. 
So, false teachers promote immorality. They reject authority and they blaspheme all that they don't understand. And they do it in a way that allows them to move about within the church. But Jude says that even though they're within the church, they are just as rebellious as the godless sodomites who were destroyed because of their desire to rape angels. He says they're like them. Next point in your bulletin, correlation. Correlation. The next way that Jude shows us who these false teachers are, what their character is, is through correlation. Jude now goes into three more stories from the Old Testament that demonstrate exactly what the false teachers are doing. So he's just given three Old Testament examples that demonstrate that these false teachers are committing the same sins as some very famous examples of large groups rebelling and being punished that we have in Scripture. And these examples demonstrate the patterns and the priorities of false teachers. And once again, it is so important for Jude to demonstrate the seriousness of this danger by making comparisons to well-known biblical villains. He pulls these people out because he knows they're despised. He says, these people who are in there with you are like these people who I know that you despise. You need to see that. These are important examples that Jude is drawing, and we don't have time to to read each of them, but we might go, if you come back tonight, we'll go into more detail on some of this stuff um, for in the evening service. But he first starts out by saying, woe to them. Woe to them. And that is the same language of judgment that Jesus used when talking about the Pharisees. As an, uh, woe to them is an expression of displeasure that calls for retributive justice to be done. That's what it's calling for. The reason for this strong statement is because they have walked, first example, walked in the way of Cain. So, so we recognize, you guys recognize the story of Cain, right? We recognize that one a little more than the whole Michael, Satan, body of Moses story. This is Cain, right? Cain and Abel. Cain, the firstborn person on the planet. We remember his story. He and his brother Abel offered sacrifices to God. Cain offered from the fruit of the ground because he was a tiller of the ground. And Abel offered from his flock because he was a shepherd. You're told that God had regard for the offering of Abel, but not for the offering of Cain. And rather than repenting, and offering a right sacrifice to God, he murdered his brother. So Cain wanted to worship God the way that he wanted to worship God. But it was not the way that God desired to be worshipped. And Cain hated the true worship of God. And rather than being concerned about his false worship, he felt sorry for himself. He made the whole incident about himself. If you read that story, it says his countenance fell. And Jude is saying that false teachers go in this same direction. They go the way of Cain. They care about themselves. And they want to worship the way that they want to worship. There are certain principles that God has ordained when it comes to worship. And if your worship of God is about your preferences, then it really isn't worship of God at all. It's about you. And just like it was for Cain. They have found a way to make their supposed religious devotion about themselves rather than about God. And... I, this week, as I looked into some of this stuff, I was just overwhelmed with horrifying examples of this type of stuff that I've, I've watched this week. 
um, that again, I'll, maybe I'll share some of those things tonight also, but but not now. So the, so the way of Cain, and the next example he gives, the next example he gives is saying they've abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error. Now, this is a much larger story in the Bible than the story of Cain, but if you're not familiar with it, it's in Numbers uh, chapter 22 through 24. We get the story of Balaam. He's a prophet for hire. Balak, the king of Moab, sees the might of the Israelites building up, and he fears them. So he goes to Balaam, the prophet for hire, and pays him money to go and curse the Israelites. It's a very amusing story as God speaks through Balaam's donkey. That's the famous part. And he ends up being warned by God that he is not to prophesy anything other than what God tells him to prophesy. And so he tells Balak this, and Balak says, okay, that's fine, and keeps taking him to all of these different vantage points and tells him, all right, Balaam, here, curse them from up here. You see him, curse them. But when Balaam begins to speak, he can only pronounce blessings on Israel. Um, and later on, though, in chapter 31, we find, we find out that Balaam does succeed in corrupting the Israelites, and he gets them to fall into sexual immorality and commit idolatry by getting God's people to go after the women from the nations around them and committing sexual immorality with them. But the point Jude is emphasizing here is the fact that Balaam was willing to do whatever was required of him for the sake of money. He was religious for the sake of money. The implication is that Jude is saying that these false teachers use their position of religious leadership for their own profit. I don't even need to tell you how much profit-motivated false teaching is going on out there today. I watched an interview with Creflo Dollar. He, he did not have a single ounce of shame asking his followers to buy him a $65 million private jet. Not, not an ounce of shame. He didn't hesitate for a second. He was almost demanding it from them. The last example that Jude uses, he gives the example of Korah's rebellion. In Numbers 16, Korah, who is a, a relative of Moses, gets upset that he has not been chosen to be a priest, and he rebels against Moses and Moses' leadership, which, as is evident throughout the um, Pentateuch, Rebellion against Moses' leadership is rebellion against the authority of God who put Moses in that position. And, and we see that Korah had, had a good-sounding argument. We'll just say that. And a lot of people followed him. And God opened up the earth and ended that quickly. He swallowed up many of the rebellious people and some fire came down from heaven and killed another 250 men who had followed Korah. But the worst part was that another 14,700 people were killed by a plague because Korah had led them away also because they believed him. So we see that the progression of the false teachers too as Cain acting in and of himself all the way to Korah who has brought others with him. Jude's point here is that they're leading others to join them in their fate. And again, I've been watching a lot of horrifying clips of false teachers saying and doing a lot of outrageous and inappropriate things. And it makes me pretty upset when I see the horrific ways in which they malign God. And then there's another layer to that. As if maligning God isn't bad enough, it is so troubling, the knowledge that, that these people, these false teachers, are leading people away. That these poor people that they are manipulating and they are abusing are headed for the same fate that they are. So these are the three correlating examples that Jude gives to help us have an even better picture of what these false teachers look like. Like Cain, selfish, 
worship of self, Balaam, pursuit of money, Korah, leading others astray. This is what they're doing. Next point in your bulletin, depiction. Depiction. Next, Jude gives five examples from nature. That's what we see here, starting in verse 12. Five examples from nature to help depict what false teachers are like. But he says here, first of all, in verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Reefs, if you're not familiar with those, are they're, they're undersea coral formations. Um, and they're, so I've, I've seen one went back a long time ago when I went to the Philippines and they let us go scuba diving. We, we drove up alongside this, this cliff and you could look down and you, when you looked down in the water, it looked like there was just a little bunch of little like floating things on top, just like little pointy things that were, they didn't look like much from the top. But then when you went underwater, you saw that it's this massive rock structure with all these finger-like projections. And those aren't, that's not algae or, or, or floating seaweed or something like that like it looked like, but it is, it's, it's solid rock. And if a ship were to go over it, not knowing that, it would tear the bottom of the ship out from under it and sink the ship. And that's what Jude is saying. These are like hidden reefs that can destroy a ship. They don't look like much, but you, you go over it and it will sink you. Jude is saying that that's what these people are among you. He says they're hidden reefs at your love feast. The love feast was this time of, of fellowship that they had that was kind of akin to our, our Sunday night barbecues that we had over the summer where we would all come together for some, we'd have some biblical teaching and then we'd pray together and then we'd all go and we'd sit together and eat and fellowship. It was a great time. And Judah's saying, these false teachers are sitting, sitting among you there doing immense damage to your church like hidden reefs doing damage to the church and the people in it as they feast with you. He actually, if you look at it, he condemns the readers for the fact that the false teachers are able to do that, to come and eat with them, to do it without fear. It's not saying you shouldn't have unbelievers come and visit times like that, but for them to come and teach their false teaching and sit among you and to do it without fear is a condemnation on them. He's saying that those who claim to be Christian teachers but have been found to be apostate should feel uncomfortable around the truth and around those who believe the truth. They shouldn't like being around it and they should not be able to feel comfortable teaching their lies. There is no virtue to having a church that is a marketplace of ideas. That is not what the church is to be. He says they are like shepherds who feed themselves contrary to, to the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, these are shepherds who sit and eat while the sheep starve. This is who they are. Judah saying that this is who they are. This is what they do. They look innocent, but they are destroying you, and that is their intention. And you're inviting it in gladly. And second, he calls them waterless clouds swept along by the wind. This means clouds that don't produce rain. If you're a farmer, you know you need water on your crops for them to live. Or if there's a, a famine in the land and you see some dark thunderclouds headed your way, you are excited for the promise of water and the life that that water will bring about and produce. But the picture here is of those clouds coming in and your excitement for them and what they're going to do. They're coming in and then they just move right over you without producing a single drop of rain. Judah saying that these men look like they are going to bring some sort of spiritual refreshment, but they do not. They cannot produce that which you really need. It's not in them. They make a lot of noise. They promise a lot of things. But after they leave, you are no better off. In fact, you're just more thirsty. So, so what happens? You, you look and you see another one of those clouds and you get excited by it. 
It says they're blown about by the winds. This, this, this is the picture of aimless movement. They, they swing by, they come by, and they, they maybe give you a little lightning and give you a little thunder. And while it's there, it's really impressive. But whether or not you know it at the time while you're being impressed by the thunder and lightning, what you need is water, and they don't have it. Third, in a similar metaphor, he calls them fruitless trees in the autumn that are twice dead. So the same way a, a cloud promises rain, so an apple tree promises apples. It, it's an apple tree. It looked like an apple tree early on. Therefore, I should expect to receive some apples from it. And it says in the autumn, because the autumn is the last point, the, the last point in time where you can expect something from it. It might produce earlier than that, but if it doesn't do it right before the winter hits, it's not going to do it. So it's pictured as these people waiting around, waiting around all the way to autumn for something to happen, and nothing happens. It doesn't. It, it promises something that it never delivers, and something that it can't deliver because we're told that, it's, that they're twice dead. It's, it's fruitless and it's uprooted. It is fruitless, and it will never be anything else because it has no root. It's, it, it's not going to produce anything because it's a dead tree. Fourth, he compares them to wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. If you have ever been uh, to the ocean, you know that the, the waves constantly crashing up against the shore, they're very loud, but they relatively quickly come up and then they, they go back down. And when they go back down, they don't leave anything good behind. Jude says they are like loud waves producing nothing but foam. So when you go to the beach, you, you see the waves come up and often it has that, that foam on it and it sits around up there for a while. And then after a while, the foam kind of disappears. And then you see what has been brought up by the wave and it's seaweeds and trash and dead fish. And that's it. And that's what it leaves behind. This is what false teachers are. They come in, they make a loud noise, but they produce nothing of value. How many, how many of these types of false teachers are there out there? Of all of these people who are so devoted to them. They promise that by following them and listening to them, they will receive blessings or riches or happiness or inner peace or, or the ability to be a Christian in this world that everyone likes and doesn't go through any trials. But Sunday after Sunday, they come up, they make their same noise, maybe using lights and sound machines and stage productions and make more noise to cover their empty promises. And then the service ends and when you look and it goes back, all that's left is a bunch of filth and dead fish. Nothing has happened of any lasting value. Yet, next week, there you are, waiting for the next wave, maybe this one. It sounds so impressive. How can it not bring anything? Fifth, he compares them to wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now we know that stars don't wander. They are fixed, and that, that is what Jude's point is. He's referring to the fact that because stars are fixed, you can use them to navigate. You can use them to guide you, to direct you when you're sailing and it's nighttime. He's saying false teachers are like are like trying to use a, what is essentially use a shooting star, which, you know, we know is not an actual star, but we still call them shooting stars. Uh, use a shooting star to, to try and plot a course. You, you can't do that. They show up for a second and then they're gone. Plus, plus they're moving. They don't stay in place to, so you can follow in the right direction. If you attempt to use them as a guide, you will go in the wrong direction. They might be bright. They might be fun to look at. They cannot direct you, and they don't last. And he ends this metaphor by talking about their destruction leading into the next point, the last point. Just as, just as a shooting star shows up for a while and then fades into darkness forever, so it is with these men whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's what our next point is, condemnation. Condemnation. Jude takes a moment now at the end, to remind us of an important thing to remember about 
these false teachers, as you are tempted to be distracted by their noise and their flashiness and their smooth talk and their false promises, he wants to remind us of their certain condemnation. And he does it in an interesting way by using an example from the book of First Enoch, which again is not a book of the Bible. But here's what he says in verse 14 again. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. They have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Again, Jude quoting it here doesn't make the book of First Enoch Scripture, but uh, the book of Enoch wasn't, wasn't actually even written by Enoch. It was written much later. But Jude quoting this prophecy means that what was said here was actually said by Enoch. And it indicates that it was so important, what Enoch said was so important that it was passed along orally through time, uh, oral tradition throughout biblical history up until this point. Because Enoch was the seventh from Adam. He was before the flood. We need to understand that the reason it's here is not because it's in the book of First Enoch, but because it is true. And Jude being inspired to write it down now demonstrates just how important this prophecy is. Because just think about this. In the second to last book of the Bible, what we have here is chronologically the earliest prophecy that a man has ever given. There's another prophecy in Genesis 3 from God, a very important one. This is the earliest one chronologically that we have in Scripture. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. He was a righteous man whose faith in God is recorded among other Old Testament heroes of the faith in in Hebrews 11. He joins actually Elijah as, as one of only two men in history not to experience death. He was taken by God. He was so revered, and this prophecy was deemed to be so important that, it, that in order for it to be known now, Noah knew it while he was on the ark and passed it along to his sons. And after all of these years, this is what's going on here, after all of these years of passing through the time of Noah, through the time of Abraham, through the time of Moses, through the time of David, through the time of the kings, the time of the exile, and and even the years of the intertestamental period, and up through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And now, right here, Jude pulls it out and says, the fulfillment of this prophecy is now at hand among you. It's been carried along all these years to get to you. This is how important, this is how significant the problem of false teachers is. The very first prophecy given by man is about false teachers who are among them right now at this moment and are among us also. It is hard to imagine then how Jude could have made a stronger point about this. The prophecy of the Lord coming with all of those angels that they have blasphemed to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He wants there to be no question about the primary characteristic about these men who have snuck in among you and that's that they are ungodly. They are not like God. This needs to be emphasized because the line must be drawn clearly because false teachers come in and they have a form of godliness and people then and today dismiss false teaching as nothing more than just maybe a new way of thinking about things. And Jude, using this prophecy, wants to demonstrate unquestionably that this is not just a different type of thinking about the one true faith. This is ungodliness that God is coming to judge It is so severe. It is such a big deal. I mean, think about this, that Enoch's prophecy is about them. It's about these men and not about those who perished in the flood. Noah was probably on the ark thinking about this prophecy and how accurately it described those whose ungodliness was so despicable that God had to destroy the whole earth with the flood in order to remove that stain. And Judah's saying, no, that prophecy is primarily about those apostates who currently fellowship with you. 
What they are doing in your midst is more reprehensible than the sin that required the flood. Jude, Jude goes even further in verse 10 and describes who they are even more. How can you look at these words in verse 10? They're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. How can you argue that they are part of you or part of God's people when they are marked up and down by ungodliness? By pointing out their condemnation from this prophecy, Jude is further unmasking these men and giving us a picture of them and essentially saying they should not be as hidden as they are. Brothers and sisters, false teaching is a serious problem within the church. Not taking it seriously, not addressing it, is like telling God that the flood was an overreaction. Jude makes it clear that while false teachers hide themselves and sneak in unnoticed, we have a responsibility to recognize them. They are not of us. and We need to recognize it and call it out. We are not of those who reject the authority of God by ignoring His Word when it doesn't suit us and by minimizing His holiness by making light of sin. No, we are those who recognize a holy God who created the universe and us and therefore has all authority in it. A God who is perfect and whose judgment on all those who oppose Him or rebel against Him is just. That's who God is. We are not those who think of ourselves arrogantly, who boast about ourselves, who, who grumble and complain when things don't go our way because our world actually revolves around us. That is not us. No, we are those who are to understand that we are created beings with an absolute dependence on our Creator for every breath we take. We are those who understand that we have, we have all rebelled against God in our sin and we have nothing to boast about and therefore we desperately need His mercy. And we are those who do not deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. We are not those. We are those who understand Him rightly as the one perfect mediator who lived a perfect life in obedience to God and therefore able to make the penalty for our sins on Himself fully God so that that payment can be applied to all who believe we are not those who see sin as something to be played with and excused and to find ways to sneak it into the church, to find ways to sneak into the church that for which hell was created and Christ had to die. No, we see sin and we hate it and we repent of it and we strive to live a life of holiness. False teaching in all its forms represents an assault on those precious truths of the gospel. We must give ourselves to recognizing that which would try and sneak in among us and attack the gospel that unites us to Christ and to each other. God, we thank you so much uh, for your word. We thank you for your loving warning. Just as a, a loving father would warn their child of the seriousness and the danger around them when, when they're in the presence of something dangerous. So you love us enough to give us these warnings. And I pray that we would take them seriously. In Jesus' name, amen.